Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we are an award-winning, chart-topping podcast. Some people call us an oddcast. For those who value real, different dialogues about how to build a legendary business and a legendary life. And on today's episode, we continue our run of legendary authors. My dear friend, one of my favorite people, Kevin Maney, is here. And amongst many other things, he is considered to be the world's leading authority on IBM's history. And he shares some incredible insights into what IBM did during the 1930s, the Great Depression, that ultimately positioned them for greatness. And he's written a fantastic new post about this. And if you want a copy of that post, I would highly encourage you to go to lockhead.com, hit subscribe, and we will send you uh, Kevin's post next week. What we talk about on this episode is key learnings from what IBM did during the Great Depression that'll have a powerful impact on both your career and your business. Kevin, as you probably know, is a multi-time best-selling author. Most recently, he wrote a stunner called Unscaled, and one of my two favorite books of all time, Play Bigger. <laughs> he also wrote for uh, decades for USA Today, Newsweek, and many other top publications. Among being a legendary writer, he's also a co-founder of Category Design Advisors, where he and his partners help companies create and dominate their own market categories. Again, go to Lockhead, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com and subscribe to our newsletter. We'll email you Kevin's uh, legendary post. Now, over the last few weeks, we've certainly learned that uh, if we can eliminate waste and make things simpler, now's the time to get streamlined. And that's where my friends at NetSuite by Oracle come in. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, encompassing everything from finance, HR, inventory, omni-channel commerce, and frankly, everything you need to run your business in one place. So no more hairballs, no more zillions of applications, one cloud suite to rule them all. As a matter of fact, 20,000 other organizations have chosen to standardize on NetSuite, and maybe it's time for you to, to do so as well. Visit netsuite.com slash different. And while you're there, you'll be able to get a new playbook that they've assembled uh, to help reopen business called Seven Actions Businesses Need to Take Now. And you'll get your free product tour at netsuite.com slash different. Now, in a crisis, one thing is very clear. Legendary organizations turn data into doing. And that's where my friends at Splunk come in. Splunk is the leader in data to everything, bringing data to every question, every decision, and every action. And man, oh man, we need some clear data now, don't we? Go to splunk.com slash D, the number two E, and learn how to turn data into doing. That's Splunk, S-P-L-U-N-K dot com slash D-2-E. Also, I highly encourage you to uh, go to whatever podcast player that you like and subscribe to Lockhead on Marketing. We are about to embark on the world's first marketing pod storm, and we're going to drop daily episodes with marketing ideas to help you uh, hopefully navigate and maybe even come out of this thing a little bit stronger. So uh, check out Lockhead on Marketing. Now, hey-ho, let's go. I've been watching what's been happening 
and I wrote a biography of Thomas Watson, the guy who built IBM. And, uh, you know, there's been all this, of course, economic damage and talk of a long-term recession or depression everybody's got to get through. And seeing the, you know, companies laying off people right and left and the jobless rate going through the roof and, and all this pain that's being caused. And it made me think back to IBM in the 1930s during the Great Depression. So just to set the stage a little bit, IBM was formed in 1911, and it was kind of a shitty little company making not very important things for the first probably decade, 15 years of its existence. But uh, Watson started to spot this technology that was kind of in a corner of IBM called the tabulating machine. At the time, they were just selling it to you, you know, census takers, for instance, to, uh, to you know, tabulate uh, all that incoming information. And essentially, you know, to use language, Chris, you and I have often used, invented the category of data processing. And through the like the 1920s, you know, late 1920s, railroads, insurance companies, things like that started buying. But IBM was not a huge, was not a huge business. Um, and data processing was not anything that anybody but the biggest corporations would have ever touched. So it wasn't the superpower or anything at that point. So going into the depression, Watson looked around and said, I actually basically made a statement and said, I'm not going to lay off anybody. I believe this is not going to last all that long. And the technology that we make is important enough that um, when this ends, if companies have put off buying it, they're going to want to buy it. This was his logic afterwards. And in fact, if there's a pause here, then let's invest in the business and try to create better technology and, you know, and, and build up some factory capabilities and all that so what he does is he uh going to like 1930 he ref not only refuses to lay anyone off but he keeps the factories running he says we're just going to take build machines we're going to build parts we're going to store them in a warehouse and in fact um in the first couple of years of the depression he actually increased ibm's factory production capability actually increased invested in increasing it so at the beginning of the recession He's throwing money into R&D. He's throwing money. Well, at this point, he's 1930, 31, he's throwing money into manufacturing and, and at, uh, at keeping his workforce. Now, mind you. He's adding capacity, adding capacity in anticipation of demand that's not yet right. there or even, frankly, on the horizon. And keep in mind, also, demand has fallen off a cliff uh, for whatever machines they were making. So he's not selling. He's selling half or less of what he was selling before. But still so you look like a madman when demand is falling off a cliff and you're like, hey, you know what we're going to do here, folks? We're going to build more capacity. That's that's exactly what he did. Um, and yes, he's, people thought he was a little nuts. And uh, so then he adds to this by, uh, uh, at you know, at this point in time, there really wasn't much in, in the world of uh, corporate research labs. It really didn't exist to any great degree. Um, so in 1932, as all this is still happening, he decides to build IBM's first corporate research lab in Endicott, New York, staff it with the best scientists he can find, buys all this expensive equipment, spends essentially 6% or so of IBM's revenue for that year um, on building this lab and, uh, and sets these guys up and says, you know, I want you to create new technology and get us way ahead of all of our competitors. And Roughly, how far are we now into the into the depression? So it's nineteen. This is he, he decides to do this in nineteen thirty two, which is about two years into, you know, the real serious 
Great Depression. Yeah. So in two years in, like we're feeling pain. There's panic. Companies are going out. Employment levels are, you know, horrible. And at, at that point, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the, the end is not really in sight no. yet. And this is, this is when you're seeing the classic, like, you know, bread lines around the block, um, thousands of banks uh, collapsing and folding. And in fact, uh, uh, you know, here he's selling these computational machines. And remember, these are, these are pre-computers. So they're those clunky with the punch cards with holes in them. Uh, and uh, tab- you're called tabulating machines, right? They're just running these things through an electromechanical kind of product. That was the cloud computing of the day. The cloud computing. <laughs> and, and so wages are falling so far at this point in time that it actually becomes cheaper for a company to hire a room full of clerks to tabulate all this stuff than, it, than to go and buy an IBM machine. So he's, you know, his market is fuck basically at this point. And, uh, and yet he's investing in manufacturing capacity, investing in, in R and D, um, with this optimism, believing like, you know, that we're going to come out of this and we have to come out of this as the reigning superpower. So this goes on 1932, 1933, 1934, IBM is starting to run out of cash. It's getting in a real serious bind. Uh, the board of directors actually meets and says, uh, we should consider throwing this crazy person out and uh, decides to hold off. You remember the, the legend, the management uh, guru, legendary Peter Drucker, uh, who um, I had the absolute privilege of interviewing in like 2000 when he was in his 90s um, about Watson because he actually knew Watson. What was it like to interview Peter Drucker in his 90s? It was amazing because here this guy, I, I, so I go went to his home in Claremont, California. And, uh, you know, he, I, I remember I rang the doorbell and for, it seemed like like 10 minutes, I hear this voice on the other side going, coming, coming. <laughs> so he's, you know, he's eventually gets to the door. He's this little old guy and we sit down and I was absolutely astounded at his brain and the the intricate recollection that he had of events of like 70 years before. And so we talked, I think we talked for like three hours. It was incredible. And this was in the context of your IBM book? It was. It was all about, uh, yeah, it was all about the, you know, the industry at the time and what he, you know, his interactions with Watson. He was a writer for Fortune through some of Watson's career, and he actually knew him as a journalist. And, and I remember the line Drucker told me about this period of time, and he, he said, he said, basically said, Watson never really knew how close he came to collapse, to collapsing all of IBM. So now we're talking, I mean, imagine the tension that's going on here, right? I mean, there's no revenue coming in. He's spending all this money to keep all these people, run these factories, build machines, fund R&D. And 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 he's running out of time. Um, And then this amazing event happens. So, Franklin Roosevelt gets elected and um, he starts the, the New Deal, which is trying to pump money back into the economy and, you know, and, and a big public works program and, and programs for artists and all this stuff. In 1935, FDR finally gets Social Security passed, the Social Security Act, and signs the Social Security Act into law. And uh, as I say I, in the book, is I don't think that any single stroke of a pen ever created 
a bigger data processing problem. Because instantly, now Social Security, that meant that every company that paid workers had to keep track of what it paid them in order to send that information to the federal government. And the federal government had to take all of that data coming in and sort it out and understand who to send checks to and send these checks out. And doing that manually, whether you were the company or the government, was going to be, you tell me, virtually impossible. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you had 20 employees, you could do it. But if you had 10,000 employees, you were, you were screwed. So instantly, instantly, every major company needed some machines to help them do this. And the federal government needed an acre of these machines to do this work. And everybody looked up and there was really only one company they could possibly turn to. So Watson's sitting there going, well, I have warehouses full of machines I can sell you, and I have factories that are up and running so I can make more. And by the way, I've invested in R&D for the past four, four or five years, and my what I've got is way better than anything any competitors have got. And so within literally within a year, IBM's fortunes completely turn around. It becomes a, a hero of a company in the press. And, and in fact, a, a, an interesting side note is about a a year and a half later, the newly formed Securities and Exchange Commission um, decides that it is going to track and publish the salaries of the top executives in the U.S. So the first year that this comes out, Watson shows up as the highest paid uh, CEO in the, in the country, making, and he made $360,000 that year. So he, he got this label in the press as the $1,000 a day man. And, uh, and suddenly, this guy who had no profile uh, before becomes a, a huge you know, celebrity businessman in the country. Is he the first big celebrity business uh, leader? You know, I mean, people don't really realize this, but he, he was, you know, he was the Bill Gates, the Jeff Bezos, the Mark Zuckerberg of that particular. Yeah. And, uh, and in fact, the following year after that, the, that salary survey spread beyond just CEOs into like, you know, celebrities and you know, other people. And um, the most popular, the best, most well-known celebrity in the country at the time was the comedian Will Rogers. And um, the survey turned up that uh, Will Rogers came in second in earnings and Watson came in first. And so that really got people's attention that now who is this guy that made more money than Will Rogers? And and of course, there were other tycoons and so forth before him that were and their names were known. Oh, sure. But I I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, given the time and given where mass media was and magazines and sort of, you know, way better than me, but there was more mass communication on a broad scale across the country. And so it was it was his ability to become famous was greater than that of tycoons of other eras, I guess is my point when I think, was he really the first sort of celebrity CEO in a, in a modern context or, or not? I mean, I I don't know if he is the first, but he certainly was among those first ones. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, And in fact, he, uh, well, I mean, just as a footnote, I mean, he he realized that IBM was a, a company that made a lot of machines that most of the general public would never touch or ever see. Uh, and so he ended up realizing he could use his fame um, as a way to um, publicize IBM and get people to know what, you know, what this company was and, and, you know, create a brand around it. Which was a pretty interesting idea given he was what today we would call a B2B brand. Yeah, exactly. And of course I wasn't 
even though some people think I might look like I was alive then, uh, my understanding is companies that were B2B companies back then were much more likely to be in the background than they are today. And therefore the average, like, you know, people today might know what salesforce.com is in the general community, but much less so in the thirties and forties. Yes. Yeah. I I would say that's probably true. I mean, people knew, you know, railroad tycoons and, uh, you know, media tycoons and things like that. But, um, but yeah, didn't really know, um, didn't really know the B2B kinds of companies at all. Um, but one of the things I, I, um, I, you know, I've been wanting to retell the story at this moment in time, um, because, well, first of all, all the, all the corporate CEOs out there that are looking at what's going on and saying, I got to lay off, you know, 30,000 people and, you know, shut down these factories or whatever. I want to say to them, you know, with this, through this story, you know, think again, that, this, you know, this could also be an opportunity to um, to build something up and get ahead uh, and come out of this even stronger. But just the companies in general across the board, and, and Chris, you and I have talked about this, is that these kinds of moments in time can be seen as a tragedy, but they could also be seen as an opportunity. And if you you can, you know, invest in the business and and um, you know, yeah, I mean, be wise and be careful, but. Invest in the business, invest in technology or the R and D of it, or whatever. Come out of this at the other end um, in a better position than you went in, and everybody else around you is devastated. I mean, you're in a great place, so you can't just decide you're just going to hunker down and just get through this. It's got to be more than that. Yeah, and and I'm almost positive you were the one that brought it to play bigger the book. This notion that it is interesting when you look at downturns. And new category or new company creation, you know, one that I remember, of course, is, is is Google really, even though it was founded in the go-go days of the dot-com boom, it really didn't start ascending until the beginning of the crash and then after the crash. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, even, you know, Microsoft was founded in a... Uh, in in an economic downturn um i mean there's in the 2000 more recent one the 2008 downturn i mean slack was founded and uh and venmo was founded you know just you can there's lots of companies that get started in the worst of times and and in some ways it's a great time to start a company you gotta have better access to talent you got you know cheaper real estate you have um you know there's your competitors who are down and knocked out and um so if you can do it, there's a lot of advantages to, to, you know, to taking advantage of these kinds of times. So I've been playing with this idea in my head, and the thread goes like this, Kev. I think just like post 9-11, we couldn't understand the depth and the breadth of the changes that were going to come as a result. I think that could very well be true here. Point A. Point B, I don't think there's going back or reopening. I think February is over and and what's going to happen is a new future. Mm-hmm. And so if you take that as a premise that there's no going back or reopening, there's just a future that's going to be created. If there's a sort of mass new future that's going to be created, does that then create a mass game of jump ball for new innovation and new category creation are we on the precipice here because of this massive you know we got hit by a meteorite 
and a lot's going to change. Are we on the precipice of sort of the biggest new opportunity for category and innovation in the modern era? Or, you know, is the Mary Jane just really good in Santa Cruz? (laughs) I think there's something to it. Uh, Yeah, the meteor hit, the dinosaurs are all dying. And, and so, you know, what comes, what, uh, what takes their place. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I just finished a, a, a book about healthcare and technology with a top venture capitalist and a top CEO, um, from the healthcare industry. And the whole point of the, um, a big point of the, about the book is that everything that's happening with in COVID is accelerating these changes that we're just beginning on the edges of healthcare and it's going to open up. I mean, healthcare is a, um, first of all, it was a disaster going, you know, into this as an, as an industry, of course, you know, doctors and, and nurses and first responders are all heroes through all of this, but the, this, the industry itself is a train wreck and everything that's happened with COVID starting with things, simple things like all of us getting used to talking to a doctor on a, on a smartphone or through a screen, instead of having to go into the office uh, are going to accelerate changes in the industry and and open up all of us to new possibilities and new ways we were willing to do things in healthcare that we never thought of before. And, and healthcare is a what a three trillion dollar industry in this country. And so imagine the opportunities that are going to open up just in that one sector alone, much less, I mean, look at transportation and 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 communication and the way we you know the way what's an office building anymore. I mean just everything is well, called into question. Would you want to own a lot of office space where white collar knowledge workers yeah. go <laughs> <laughs> yeah if we work wasn't in trouble before like holy fuck. <laughs> i mean because i think a lot of people go uh yeah look some of the in-person stuff all that's important but the reality is you know you and i don't see each other very much compared to how much we communicate with each other and we maintain if not grow a deep personal and professional relationship mm-hmm And so there's some of us who've been working this way for quite some time. And for those of us who haven't been, I think people are starting to realize like, hey, you know what? You can get a lot of work done this way and over email and you can build real deep, meaningful, dare I even say loving relationships with people digitally. You fucking can. (laughs) I'll tell you another one. Um, You you know, uh, I so I live in New York, have a lot of friends who live in New York and, uh, you know, professional of all sorts a lot of people left new york during this crisis and are writing it out elsewhere i've had a lot of conversations with them many of them are wondering why they would want to go back and um you know they're living in some cabin in upstate new york or they're living in they're they're spending this in a beach in florida or wherever else it ends up being and and saying well why do i need to be crammed in an office in a busy city when i can do this my work this way and maybe fly up there once every three weeks so even just the idea of the, I mean, the last, you know, what, two generations have been all about um, urbanization and people moving to cities. Have we just crossed a threshold where, yeah, cities are, are going down and, and, uh, and we're going to all live everywhere else? I don't know. I, I, I think there's something very big there. Uh, we, 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 look, we're social creatures. We want to be around each other. That There's some huge value to that. but. Um, and I don't mean any disrespect to any particular city, but, you know, do you really want to live in a place like Sao Paulo? Yeah. I, I mean, 
I don't know. Maybe you do. I mean, look, I love Manhattan, but, you know, there's a lot of honking going on. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of wonderful advantages, but there's a lot of disadvantages and, you know, small, smaller spaces and, and high costs and crowds and traffic and everything else. And, you know, if you can do just as well uh, and do what you're planning to do and you in a little better setting, maybe you want to do that. In, you know, in Unscaled, which I think is a fucking genius book, if I remember, this is my memory of it, so you tell me if I'm remembering it how you want me to, but essentially it's, it's you're really breaking down the advantages of being small and being able to use technology to create self-forming organisms, supply chains, value chains to come together, get shit done, break apart, reconfigure, and that by being, quote, unscaled and being able to configure to the situation that smaller technology-enabled companies had the ability to shuck and jive in a way that a traditional company couldn't. That's how I remember it. Is that roughly what you wanted me to remember? Uh, yeah, roughly, yeah. Yeah, that, that's basically it. And, and um, data and AI is such a game changer because it can allow a, a company to essentially reach people on a very personal level at scale in a way that's much better than look i mean the whole 20th century everything was built on mass something like mass production mass market mass media it was all about economies of scale and how do you make this most of the same thing for the most people and ai and cloud and mobile and all that turns that on its head and said it and says the the most the most uh, successful products and services are going to be things that seem like it's just made for me and is talking yeah. to me personally, rather than the same thing everybody else has. Um, and those companies are reinventing industry after industry. And they're creating this thing we love to call a niche NATO, right? There's all these micro niches that couldn't have existed before. You weren't going to be ordering, you know, custom guitar capos with your logo or whatever on them. Or, you know, my, my wife loves Etsy and I, I, I don't quite understand it, but I do get the magical awesomeness of it and like you know for example hens have very sensitive feet and if they get a cut they can get infected and it turns into a shit show anyway she finds this gal on etsy who takes like wetsuit type neoprene and makes fucking booties for hens <laughs> well that's, that's not a business you can have in a that's geofenced right? right but but you unscale it and then bada bing, right? That's what we're talking about here. Yes. Exactly. So, so we need, so somebody needs to take unscaled and niche down, put them together. And, and then you've got a formula for uh, success. We know the authors of those books. Maybe, maybe we should uh, open a bottle of Jack and see if the books can have a baby. <laughs> Very smart idea. But, but so, but here's the aha for me, I guess, to get back to, are we looking at a potential um, is the quote, quote unquote silver lining here that there's a potentially a massive breakthrough in, in innovation, company creation, category creation. And, and Eddie, you and I have been talking a lot about this. Mike Maples is really the first guy I remember hearing him say this. I think we, we might've been together when he said it, which was essentially in business and these are, this is my memory of what he said. So I'm not trying to put words in his mouth, but there's two kinds of people. There's people who bet on it being the same. And there's people who bet on being it different. And so Warren Buffett bets that people drink Coke 
and they drank Coke a hundred years ago and they're going to drink Coke for another hundred years. And he bets that people like chocolate and they're going to buy Miss C, Mrs. C's, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's people of, who live in our world who make bets on things that make no sense because we're making a bet that says this thing that sounds insane uh, might actually become a thing called a category and be hugely important. So with all that said, if you take that premise for a sec, mm -hmm. here's sort of my aha. And I'm, I, I say this like a question to bounce off you. Are there many fewer bets on it being the same that you can now make or said in a different way? Are the bets on, uh, are the percentage bets on different? Did they just go up materially because of all this? Well, to answer your question with any kind of like hard information, I, I, I don't think there's any way to know. But my opinion would be that if you're betting on things being the same, you're an idiot right now. <laughs> I mean, it's it, everything is up for grabs. Uh, and so, yeah, but the same is gone. And that's never happened before, right? I mean, in, in, in modern history, since the last pandemic, there's never been a situation where globally every country and every person has to deal with this thing called in plus or minus February or January, it was how it was, and now it's not. And what was a bet on it being the same is now stupid because it's going to be different. And so the future is sitting right in front of us, begging us to create it because the past is done. That's never happened at scale like this before. I, is that right? I, I mean, I would guess not, certainly not, uh, certainly not as suddenly either. I mean, you, I, I, like World War II was one of those events that, you know, that completely changed everything, but that unfolded over years. Um, and this just happened in like a month. <laughs> is nuts by the way you know when, one of the other things that um uh because of the suddenness of it so you've got all of these vc funds that um had had raised billions of dollars and they just stopped investing it to see what was going to happen but they're sitting on billions of dollars that they have to invest in something and uh, and I, I mean i know from a couple of conversations that i've had that that they're just waiting a little while to see how this is how much things are going to change, but then they're, they're going to look for companies that are truly betting on a different world after this. And they've got an enormous amount of money to invest in them. So, you know, that there's going to be some amazing, interesting new world kinds of companies that are going to come out of this. So that's awesome because this is where I've been getting to lately is the level of different in, in the modern era has never been higher. And it's different on every dimension from how human beings interact with each other to how companies work, to how uh, uh, research and development gets done, what the priority is going to be. The conversation around healthcare is gonna change dramatically. The, the conversation around global interdependence is gonna change dramatically. The conversation around travel, I mean, just, 
you can go through the list of anything you want to talk about yep. and, and and it's going to be affected. And then you think about some of the mega trends that were going on in technology with, you know, the gig economy and the deliveries and all of those things and drone deliveries and all that. And, you know, you look, of course, what's happened to Zoom. It's like all of a sudden, you know, Zoom had its IBM moment, right? There was Eric Yuan, who yep. I've gotten to know. And building a great business, growing at an insane amount, unbelievable IPO and all that. And then literally, I mean, you could argue his business was kind of a black swan anyway. I mean, it was a $25 billion market cap company in, I might be off a little, but five or six, maybe seven years, but like right in the sweet spot that we identified, right? Like right on it, one of the most important enterprise companies in quite some time. And then that, this thing happens. <laughs> I know. I, and you, I wonder, you know, how many versions of that? I mean, there's nothing as, as high profile as Zoom because we've all had to use Zoom just to live a, 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 have a decent life with connections, but with other people. But, um, but like one of the other ones coming. So we're, we're watching right now um, this crisis at meat processing plants. And uh, uh, so we've been dancing around and, and testing out as, as, as individuals, as consumers, these ideas of the impossible burger and beyond meat and things like that. You got to be kidding me. You got, that's going, that's kind of stuff. That's, that's their zoom moment too. Right. I mean, if, especially if meat starts to become something that gets the supply chains get disrupted, it becomes something harder to get more expensive. And then, and then what are the implications of that down the road for, um, you know, for the idea of, of farms and ranches of, of the food supply chain of, um, you know, air pollution and, and the environment. I mean, this is, this is some enormous shit that's going on here. Well, and, and to your point, just w to drill a little further into the meat thing. Okay. So, uh, you know, we had Heidi Roizen on a while ago and, uh, oh, uh, uh, what, you know, I'm so lucky because like a person like that's never going to hang out with me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but that like to hang out in Heidi's brain. Anyway, as you might know, she's uh, um, one of the investors in. Um, I think it's called Memphis Meats. Hmm, I don't. I don't. I actually don't know. There's cell-based meats yeah. is what they is what the category is called. It's essentially growing meat, mm -hmm. right? And the idea is, and it sounds Frankenstonian if that's a term, but there's another flip side that says, in ten years or fifteen years, are people going to go? You know, they people used to actually eat animals. I mean, we just grow the animals, and the steak tastes awesome. And it's just, it was never, it never had a soul. Wouldn't like, like I don't know. Maybe I'm a puss, and I, I like me. But it's a bummer that like someone else has to die, right? That's a big part of the bummer. Yep. And so, anyway, what's my point? I think you're right. I think there's all kinds of innovations in any direction. You want to talk about what well, I don't know what's going to happen to the hotel and leisure industry. Uh, what what happens to the the fucking um, float around in a giant city industry? <laughs> that, who's going to get on a cruise anytime soon? Right. I don't know. Maybe that I forget what comedian it was because this is not an original thought. So and if I could remember, I would give credit. But one of the big comedians said, OK, is it time for this industry to just not be around anymore? <laughs> I, I don't know. Old people on a coronavirus manufacturing facility. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, um, anything else sort of on your mind, particularly from the IBM learnings that 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 that's been forward to today? 
I mean, we've, we've covered, we've covered most of it. I just, uh, I just want to double down on that idea that though, that, um, you know, everybody's lives will be a lot better if, um, the, the leaders in business and the entrepreneurs out there, um, had the, you know, the foresight and the guts to, um, say that this is a time to, to invest and build and not a time to, um, hunker down and just try to survive. So, you know, across the board, the world would be a better place if, if that's the way, um, that business leaders act at this point in time. And, and that's what I, that's the message I would like to have out there. Well, and you know, Kev, well, first of all, you know, I love you. I seriously love you. And I'm 99.9% .9 sure you were the guy that wrote this. And I, I say it all the time. It's become a life mantra for me. The distinction between incremental better and the exponential different. And look, you and I are both romantic about business and, and maybe silly to some. But I think optimism and courage go together. And I think being a little romantic about it is okay. And I think now more than ever is the time for the exponential different to step forward. And what I love about what you've learned through the IBM experience and, and your long career is at the darkest of times, some of the most legendary companies come forward to do the exponential different and they take big risks. And of course, luck is always a factor, right? Yep. But as we like to say, must be present to win, right? <laughs> and so... What a fascinating time to be here because there's a very good chance we're going to see some real leaders come forward with some big exponential difference. Yeah. By the way, I think you wrote that, not me. <laughs> I'll, give you, I, I'll give you the credit for that. I like to give you credit for anything in Play Bigger that sounds smart because <laughs> it was probably you. <laughs> Thanks, Kev. I need you to come back more often. Any, well, just anytime. Absolutely. Okay, brother. Thank you so much. Stay legendary. There he is, the legendary Kevin Maney. All right. Thanks for joining us. We would like to thank Kevin himself. You can visit him at uh, KevinManey.com, KevinManey.com, or CategoryDesignAdvisors.com. My good friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org, helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Uh, you can pick up um, uh, a couple hundred thousand copies of one of Kevin's most popular books, Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. <laughs> I can't even get through it with a straight face. My friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants want to help you scale you in a completely physical distanced way. Visit bottleneck.online today. My friends at Atrenet, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T, have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley uh, for decades. Uh, why not check them out? My friends at Spiro, S-P-I-R-O dot A-I, are going to help you do some legendary selling at a time where we need to sell. So check out Spiro dot A-I. And if you can make a difference, please do. Um, we just uh, we just wrote a check for our local food bank and... Um, uh, man, oh man, I'll tell you, uh, when you send them money, they're happy to get it. Our food banks need all the help uh, that we can afford to give them right now. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. We are produced and edited by living podcast legend, 
Jason DeFilippo. You can check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. A Technical Wizardry and Awesomeness by Sarah Knox and Jamie J. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. Um, uh, George Carlin was right. Listen to Katie Lang. Only buy pasture-raised, free-range eggs. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Marcus Rust, CEO of Roseacre Farms. Sorry, Marky. We just ran out of time for you. Thank you, my friends. I sure hope you're safe. Uh, Please take good care. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.